Okay, so as usual, we will sit silently for a few minutes and settling our body and mind. You can choose any object that they are comfortable with in settling the mind. Normally, people do that by focusing on breath, where you breathe normally, naturally, and let the breathing just happen on its own. All you do is just bring your mind to be aware, aware of the process of breathing. In trying to slow down the mind, keep pace with the natural breathing, one also tries to do that alertly, attentively, and ardently, which means to bring a sense of delight, purpose, value in doing that. Let's sit for a few minutes. Let's now cultivate the merit field with Manjushri in the center, surrounded by masters, both those belonging specifically to the lineage of wisdom as well as that of method and other lineages. See Manjushri to be the embodiment of the wisdom of all the Buddhas. Of course, the wisdom of Buddha is never separated from all the rest of the affectionate qualities, fully integrated with the wisdom, just as wisdom is with all the rest of the qualities, but for special significance and relevance, 
we invoke the presence of the Buddhas in the form of Manjushri, symbolizing particularly the wisdom quality of the Buddhas. And likewise, the lineage masters, all who have transcended the path, who are on the path, we were in the middle of the discussion about the significance and the relevance of visualizing Manjushri here, touching on the role, the place of wisdom, of course, integrated with all the other method aspects of the path. Think of what the wisdom brings about, brings us to a realization and reflecting on all those lines as well as thinking of the compassion, wisdom, skillfulness, patience, all the positive qualities, having reached full consummate advancement in perfection, feel inspired by these qualities, see how through efforts, cultivation of them to such a level is possible, feel inspired and feel infused with a sense of hope for us and for all sentient beings to come out of our suffering. Take time in thinking of all sentient beings, fellow sentient beings surrounded us, surrounding us in this cultivation of the merit field as well as in the reflections. Connect with fellow sentient beings at the levels of our similarity, very basic similarities that cut across all differences. The very fundamental commonality in the aspiration to achieve happiness and be free from suffering. Despite that, we feel we find ourselves mired in problems, sufferings, limitations, predicaments. So likewise, we share in our confusion, ignorance, in our incompetencies, in bringing to fruition our inborn potentials. Yet in the midst of this confusion, we extend help to each other. We depend upon each other and we come to help for each other. Irrespective, we cannot survive, we cannot achieve just about anything without the support of other sentient beings. Thinking along these lines and others that you could bring up, feel a sense of affinity growing into empathy, into compassion, and into 
Buddhicita, aspiration to attain full awakening so that one could deliver all sentient beings from their sufferings. And remember the crucial role, the crucial role that wisdom plays in it, and thus feel even more inspired to recite the homage to Manjushri to follow. Continuing to sit with Bodhicitta in our hearts. Once again, once again, think of the role of wisdom. in realizing our final goals. The goals of definite goodness, both in the form of liberation, as well as full awakening. The goal of liberation as a step to eventually Attaining full awakening. And to strengthen this, to bring this into perspective, think of the role of ignorance. Ignorance in giving rise to all the afflictions. How all of the afflictions necessarily depend on ignorance, particularly the ignorance of misconstruing, completely misconstruing the ultimate reality, the ignorance of self-grasping. Now, ultimately, in eliminating it, Nothing but the wisdom of understanding emptiness brought to a much, much higher level of fully perceiving the reality, namely directly understanding emptiness. Only such a wisdom would have the strength in striking against the ignorance. We usually speak of two obscurations, one that of the cognitive obscuration to attaining full awakening and the afflictive obscurations to attaining liberation. The fact that we can think of the cognitive obscurations possible to be eliminated is the cognitive obscuration is nothing but the latencies left by the afflictions. Afflictions, in turn, are rooted in the ignorance. And ignorance is a mistaken, totally mistaken, completely, diametrically mistaken mind that completely gets the ultimate reality wrong. That's how, through the means of the wisdom, afflictions can be eliminated to their roots. With that, the latencies left by them will be weakened and then with further 
contemplation of the wisdom, bringing it to even higher, stronger level. Even the traces had no choice but to be completely eliminated. That's what the wisdom of understanding emptiness, of course, supported by all the powerful method aspects of the path, such as great compassion and great loving kindness, bodhicitta. But ultimately, it boils down to wisdom. Thus, along with cultivating the motivation of aspiring to attain full awakening, so that sentient beings could be led to such a state of full awakening, full freedom from sufferings. Also think of wish to bring all sentient beings to a state of full perfection of wisdom, so that not the subtlest traces of the ignorance and its offshoots and its latencies. Not a subtle trace of them would be lingering around in our mind stem and that we sentient beings. Towards that end, we are going through chapter 9 of Shantideva's text in our effort to understand the ultimate reality in its most unmistaken form. Let that be the motivation for this session and beyond. Okay, so we are in the middle of back and forth debate between the Prasangika Madhimikas on the one hand and the Buddhist realists, rather not just Buddhist realists, realists, all the kind of all, all forms of realists on one side, including those of the Buddhists. And among the Buddhists, when we speak of realists, uh, we exclude Sautantra uh, Madhamika. It's just uh, a matter of who we include when we call them realists or Ngubutembaramawa. Someone who explicitly advocate the things exist truly, Tembaratupa. And that includes all the tenant holders, Buddhist tenant holders from Chittamatra down, and also includes uh, non-Buddhists and others who uh, strongly advocate um, that things must exist truly. Things must exist in and of themselves, objectively, uh, without being dependent solely or on a projecting or designating mind. Yeah, some even go to the extent of saying in the core of 
the things uh, in the core of phenomena they they should have some kind of a element or an entity within them which could even be not just yeah which could even be very grossly impermanent independent partless etc so those are all uh, those are all signs of how they very not just advocate true existence but in a very gross identifiable way although you may never find that level of uh, advocacy in the Buddhists well uh, but but yeah not not that level of uh, advocacy among the Buddhists Buddhist tenet holders but uh, the Right, Dhammani, the two lower tenet holders, two tenet, two lower tenet systems, namely Vaibhashika and Sautantrika, they they have difficulty suggesting phenomena having to have anything to do with the do with the consciousness, their corresponding consciousness, except for the consciousness being the subjective aspect in understanding them. Apart from that, some kind of a dependence, reliance on the consciousness is totally out of their mind. So they go to the extent of saying things have not just external reality outside of the mind, but those external reality are so solid and concrete and uh, independent of the uh, corresponding mind. Chitamatras bring a different perspective to that. In a way, kind of by going to the other extreme of seeing things are nothing but only mind, only mind in the sense that they ultimately have to depend on their corresponding subjective minds or, 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 or some kind of subjective and prior subjective minds in uh, establishing those latencies which, when ripened, uh, appears in these forms that we uh, deal with, that we uh, utilize. But when it comes to the mind, jitta matras are no different in suggesting that the mind must have a very objectified, real, concrete existence. Without that, they cannot posit any kind of a tenet, any kind of a system. So that's the reason why they are included in this school, in this group called realists. So we are in the middle of uh, the dialogue between Prasangika Madhimikas and realists in general, and beginning from stanza, yeah, the second half of stanza four onward, up to I think stanza fourteen. Uh, this is a back and forth dialogue 
between Prasanga Mahadamikas and realists in general, which includes Chitramatras as well, along with the two lower systems. But then moving from there will be witnessing the dialogue or the debate between Prasanga Mahadamikas and Chitramatras in particular. Now, we'll deal with their, with the general reputation, reputation, reputation of the, the realist standard. So, last time, we were discussing stanzas six, I think part, yeah, part of stanza five and stanza six. And stanza six here begins uh, the actual, uh, what you call, actual objection from the realists in general to the Prasangika Madhamika's uh, proposition that things lack any true existence. which to the ears of the realists is totally unacceptable because it's almost equal to saying things do not exist. For them, things existing and things existing truly are one and the same thing. Same thing. They cannot tease out the two and tease them apart, see a difference between the two. So, so stark, so stark and gross is their not just innate grasping, but their acquired philosophies, what they understood, what they think as philosophically baked, supported proposition that things must have true existence. For them, it, it's solely grounded on pure reason. But faced with the Prasangika Matamikas, they begin to question that. So when we come across such a dist- the dialogues between the different tenet systems, as I last time shared, uh, this is to help us to see our own share in this kind of a grasping, and to see the to see how we could invite the Prasangya Madhyamika's insight in. Uh, cracking that stronghold on true existence. So in that respect, the first opposition was saying to claim that things do not exist truly is in contradiction with what the direct perceptions can do. So the direct perceptions of direct perceptual consciousnesses are our sense consciousnesses and also uh, some part of our mental consciousness. They are called direct because they do not have to be mediated through the generic image, denji, as is the case with all the conceptual thoughts. So they are called direct perceptions in that their perception of the objects is direct, unmediated by a generic image, denji. 
But for them to see things like form and others being directly registered and understood by the visual and other consciousness, direct sensory consciousness and, and others, is like affirming that things do exist uh, truly, that the forms must exist truly. Otherwise, how could it be directly perceived by eye consciousness? Saying that eye consciousness is unmistaken in seeing the form, and seeing and the form stands there as being seen by the uh, sense consciousness, and thus for them it is a proof, unmistaken proof, that form, as being perceived by the visual consciousness, must be truly existent, and that the direct perception should be a consciousness that sees the ultimate reality, the ultimate motives existence of the form, and that there cannot be any other mode of existence of the form other than what is being seen. And to this, the Prasangik Madhemika's uh, uh, response was, yes, we also affirm that this direct perception perceives the form, that the form is unmistakably there as an object of the uh, visual consciousness, but form is there as an object of the visual consciousness only by mere, by sheer uh, fact of its being, its being taqwa, in being, its being uh, available uh, to such a consciousness as its object. Let's put it like this. The direct translation would be as being renowned by the direct perception. Renowned by the direct perception in the sense that it, the object presents itself as an object to be experienced by the direct perception. And they think that, uh, yeah, and then the person Madhimika says that. So that way of seeing the form is not getting at the form's ultimate reality. We're talking of forms being not existing truly or not existing in and of themselves from the objective side. Uh, not that forms do not exist. Forms do exist and they are affirmed uh, by this direct perception that uh, registers it. But that direct perception is far from seeing the ultimate reality of the form. So that direct perception is only a Conventional valid cognition in relation to the sound, in, in relation to its object, the form, not a ultimate valid cognition that senses even the ultimate reality of the form. So that might shock uh, this, the realists, particularly the Vaibhashikas and the Satantrakas, to say that there is another reality outside that, beyond that, which is beyond the reach of ordinary sense perceptions. That is, of ordinary sense perceptions are totally oblivious, oblivious of such a reality. And the Pasangikas continue by saying form and so on, so on, which is all the rest of the phenomena, are false, like worldly acceptance, worldly acceptance of that or like, like worldly acceptance of that which is unclean and so forth, as clean and so forth. 
and saying that the form that appears to the uh, visual perception has a has a double standard in what it appears to be and what it actually exists like. And there's a double standard, and that is not being fathomed or detected by the sense perception. So the sense perception itself is as mistaken in one respect, even in regard to the form, although it may be considered to be valid in affirming the existence of the form by seeing it. But in terms of how it sees it, through what kind of appearance it affirms it, it's, it's too, it's mistaken, because there is a double standard in how it appears to it and how it, how the form actually exists. That mode of existence is totally undetected by the ordinary sense perception. So there is a whole aspect, whole aspect of the form, much deeper aspect of the form, which is totally missed uh, by the sense perception. And to that, the examples are, even in our worldly engagement in our life, we do find ourselves mistaken in seeing unclean as clean, uh, selfless as with the self, uh, things suffering in nature as not so rather pleasurable and things uh, yeah, like that and so forth is kind of alluding to the four the alluding to the four uh, distorted conceptions and their uh, corresponding uh, distortions so So that was the response, that one should not be surprised in, in this, in this uh, claim from the Prasangika Madhimikas that there is another level of existence of the forms apart from what is registered, what is sensed by the sense perception. They will come, keep coming back to these uh, responses as the discussion builds. But for now, we move on to the next one. They bring up another contradiction, another what they thought is contradic contradiction uh, with the uh, contradictory to the position of the Prasangika Madhamikas. He's saying that to say that things do not exist uh, truly, or things do not exist uh, objectively, although when I use objectively likewise, I'm taking kind of some kind of freedom. I should be sticking to the use of the term true existence, uh, but for the sake of uh, kind of contextualizing it, I use these other words. So the second contradiction brought up, at least in the eyes of the realist against the Prasanga Madhimika's position is that when you say that there is a reality far beyond than what, uh, what is apparent to us, that seems to contradict with Buddha's own words. Yeah, right? And so this, we are in stanza seven. For the sake of, uh, so, so they say that Buddha has taught, Buddha has taught that when you understand impermanence, that's all you need to understand, that's ultimate. And uh, that's going to go far in really uh, addressing the misconceptions you have from which all the resultant sufferings uh, should up. 
very often we come across uh, references in the sutras where it extols the meditation on uh, impermanence. Many of us are familiar with that from the Avatamsaka Sutra, where uh, for some reason the the footprints of the elephants are considered to be the uh, supreme among the first footprints. This, that is used as an example, and saying likewise, the meditation on emptiness is the is the is the best of all meditations. Right, so maybe alluding to such words in the in the Buddha's sayings, and more particularly, I think yeah, you might find that in the in in the uh, in the sutras of the Shravakas and the Pratyeka Buddhas. Pardon? Yes, yes, yes. Not just meditation on impermanence, but extolling it, almost seemingly to that level of saying. That's the ultimate. So that's what uh, the contradiction, the objection is pointing to, saying uh, saying that there is yet another level beyond the impermanence of things is contradicting to uh, many of the sutras where the understanding of impermanence and the meditation of it is extolled to the level of saying that's the ultimate and that's where uh, all of the answers to the sufferings and the misconceptions could be found. So to that, that, that objection is kind of, kind of uh, assumed here. It's not caught, uh, captured in the words. So what follows um, in stanza 7, with, uh, for the sake of letting the common world gradually enter into reality, the guardian Buddha taught, about true existent thing, that's a mis, uh, mistranslation. It should be taught things as impermanent. There is a, the, the Tibetan word used is mubo. Mubo is, uh, is sometimes used to refer to phenomena or uh, conditioned things. But in the context of such a debate, uh, uh, touching on the ultimate reality, mubo is very much the substitute for true existence. So that's where this uh, uh, this uh, translation uh, comes up. But uh, in the context, just as in the context also, and also in the commentary by Jasap uh, it's quite uh, clear that the things there are, uh, things being referred there, is things as impermanence, things, the conditioned things, which have no other choice, no, no other Way, but to be impermanent in the first place. So, for the sake of letting the common world gradually enter the reality, the guardian Buddha taught things as impermanent. So, saying, so saying, not not responding by saying that's totally wrong. That's that's not what Buddha taught. But these Prasangika Madhamikas are aware of such teachings, and they see how contextually such teachings would be in place. So when Buddha is teaching to common worldly uh, practitioners who kind of uh, resonate more at that level, but not quite ready for uh, for uh, tackling on the ultimate reality, for them, uh, the teaching on things being impermanent 
that they are able to digest, that they are able to understand, is used as a an entry point to deeper reality, uh, so that they could gain uh, the complete insight into the Buddha's teaching. Usually, it's understanding when we when we speak of the four four realities, four realities of existence. Uh, impermanence, the suffering nature, the empty nature, and the no-self nature, they are even presented in this particular order as a way of first one leading to the next, understanding the next into the next. And that's very clear. Many of you have studied the second chapter of Brahmana Vartika. There's even a particular line kind of which touches on this order of uh, first understanding impermanence leading to uh, the suffering nature. Therefore, uh, from impermanence comes the understanding of suffering. From the understanding of suffering, then one understands the selfless nature. The connection between that two is quite tricky to understand. How come, how does seeing the suffering nature unlocks uh, one's misconception with regard to the selfhood of things. But nonetheless, that particular statement is alluding to the order by which one has to pursue these understandings. So there also, uh, it is quite clear how uh, the understanding of impermanence kind of lends itself as an entry point into eventually going deeper into the selfless nature of things. And then the next, the, 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 the third line, in the ultimate sense, however, they are not momentary. So this, here I use the term uh, Buddha's ultimate teaching. This is uh, using the term, this is using it for the Tibetan term uh, and Tangde, usually translated as interpretive and definitive, but the meaning of it changes when we reach uh, the Prasangakamatamika's level. Up until then, um, up, up until then uh, when we speak of the interpretive and definitive, it's only concerning scriptures, texts. A scripture could be said interpretive, and a scripture could be said definitive. So the interpretive nature, the definitive nature, uh, lends itself more to the, uh, more to the, um, more to the literal or not literal meaning or intention of the text. But when we move on to the Prasange Matamika, then of course scriptures could be said to be interpretive and definitive, but the main reason why they are called definitive and interpretive is what they touch on, what's the main subject matter they touch on. And the subject matters themselves are called interpretive and definitive. It's by reason of the subject matter, the main subject matter being interpretive, the text or the scripture dealing with it is called interpretive. It's by reason of the main subject matter being definitive, and then that scripture is called definitive scripture. And that's not the way in the lower tenets, in the, in the Chittamatra and lower, well, Chittamatra, when it comes to, uh, classifying the Buddha's scriptures into definitive and interpretive, that system you will only find built 
up in the Chitramatra system and Prasang and the Madhyamika system. The uh, Sautantrika and Vaibhashika systems, they don't have that kind of a classification. So very often it is, uh, it is the case that you do not find them saying this is interpreted. This is contextual, maybe they could say, but this is interpreted, maybe even not even contextual. As things have to be explicitly ex acceptable. And the rest, they would say, no, these are not teachings of the Buddha. Whereas in the case of the Prasangika Madhyamika, Chittamatra, they wouldn't abjectly reject the words of the Buddhas when claimed by others. They could either say yes, or they say it could be, uh, because they have this place, they have this system in place of uh, even accepting uh, teachings of the Buddha, which may not be explicitly, literally acceptable, but would have uh, uh, would have a purpose and complete relevance in a particular context situation. So the next line, in the, the third line, in the ultimate sense, however, they are not momentary. It is in English. It is said in the ultimate sense, or in the sense of definitiveness. However, they are not momentary. That's what it 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 uh, it would it it could read. So, so we have to understand. In the ultimate sense, they are not momentary, because in the ultimate in the ultimate sense. Although when we say in the ultimate sense. Uh, I don't know how, how it comes across, but basically, when we see, when we analyze things in the ultimate sense, through an ultimate analysis, then nothing could be found, nothing could be uh, findable, nothing could be found, not even so-called uh, impermanent things. In this regard, I think uh, earlier we did touch, touch on that. In, this, uh, in the context of this discussion, yeah, there was in stanza four, the last lines of the stanza four, uh, there was this reference to unanalyzed by means of examples accepted by both. Well, I'm reading a different text. Oh, yeah. By means of examples accepted by both emptinesses and established, unanalyzed practitioners engage in training for the sake of the results. So there is some um, connection with that. When we go about naming things, we do so unanalyzed. We do so not, not by analyzing their ultimate nature. Although when I say ultimate nature, that completely spoils the point that I'm trying to bring. <laughs> uh, but uh, what it means, what it means is, when we go about making things and naming things, and on the basis of that we make uh, things uh, workable, and uh, and we go about our life, whatnot. Whenever we have very correct understanding of things being worth, things being worth or not, and that things being able to function and whatnot, those are all on the basis of on the basis of there being. Uh, Merely contingent on their causes and conditions and parts, but not with any kind of a findable essence in them. And thus, in our worldly life, 
in our ordinary life, in our worldly life. Well, this is not even not not even an exception to the worldly life. It's about just about our entire engagement, be that worldly, unworldly, mundane, super mundane, whatnot. In our entire engagement, we engage with things, and things uh, work in that in, in, in work in that way. We engage with things uh, uh, on the basis of not analyzing them, on the basis of not on the basis of not having posited them in the first place by having analyzed them ultimately. That's the only way by which things function. And that's the only way by which we label things also. We understand things to be something or not, uh, not, not by having thoroughly done an analysis of them and having found a, a kind of objective reality in them and thus name it. We do not do that because if that were to be done, we wouldn't be able to name even a single thing. And likewise, if we were to deal with phenomena by first having analyzed and found an essence and then deal with it, we wouldn't be able to deal with, uh, with anything. We wouldn't be able to get anything done because that's not the way things work. That's not the way things are. Things are what they are by mere, by sheer virtue of being contingently existing with, which means allowing for not findability. When, when searched further than the convention. So likewise the case with momentariness, likewise the case with impermanence or momentariness, even as true as it is, even backed by Buddha's own word, to the level of being extolled that this is, this is valuable and this could go a long way in really, uh, what do you call, delivering ourselves from our sufferings by, by unlocking the mistaken notions in us, etc. Even that is not an exception of being unfindable, of being unfindable, not just unfindable within that perspective, not even existing. So the fact that impermanence has been taught as definite teaching is uh, only provisional, and it has its particular context where it has relevance, but in terms of uh, it's being, uh, in terms of it's being definitive, uh, that's not the case, but that was only provisional, contextual. Because in the ultimate sense or in the definitive sense, uh, nothing, nothing, nothing withstands such an analysis and thus in the, in the uh, phase of such an analysis, it's equal to things being not existent. So, yeah. They cannot withstand such analysis. Not, not, nothing can withstand ultimate analysis. And thus, from probed or looked at from ultimate sense, uh, nothing, everything is equal to not existing. And that very clearly brings us to the other side, how things exist merely by, by virtue of being contingent on things with no findable ultimate core essence of it to be accounted for. To that, the, the, the realist object, to this, the realist object by saying, suppose you object, so their objection is that, that not only, not only that impermanence, not only that impermanence, uh, 
uh, not exist in the face of an ultimate analysis. According to what the Prasangegas are suggesting, then even uh, impermanence itself, even impermanence should not exist, even conventionally. So they are kind of turning the table back to the Prasangega uh, saying, what you claim is equal to saying even the, the, the impermanence, which, which is what Buddha extolled in other contexts, even that cannot exist. Uh, when that cannot exist, not just on the ultimate in the ultimate sense, but even in conventional sense, even yeah, even in conventional sense. The reason why they why they uh, say that is this that this is the beauty of this dialogue between the tenets systems, where the tenets come up with their uh, positions, uh, what they think is grounded on reason and evidence and whatnot. And uh, that kind of then helps in, uh, help us in finding our own qualms and misunderstandings and doubts about what the Prasangya Madhimikas are presenting. This is one of these. And this has, has, this has to do with the Tibetan term Trak, which means renown, Trakba, to be renowned, to be to be uh, understood as. And so, so earlier in the debate, the person at least accepted that yes, Buddha taught about things being impermanent, things definitely impermanent, uh, although the, the, and the level, the understanding of impermanence having been raised to the level of being definitely part is, uh, is uh, provisional, but things being impermanent is uh, truly so. And also, the understanding of impermanence has its value in really uh, kind of uh, mitigating many of our misconceptions and afflictions arising from that. So this also, uh, okay, for now this should be fine. Uh, this also says, this also shows that not only Self-grasping, even according to the uh, lower tenet holders, but even grasping at permanence of things, grasping mistakenly at permanence of things, permanence of things, is also can also serve as a breeding ground, can also serve as a source to its own respective gross afflictions, and thus the sufferings resulting from that. That's the reason why. Uh, the understanding of impermanence is uh, revered uh, because it can, at least through its understanding, it can deal with the mistaken projection of things being permanent. And because of that, many of the sufferings, many of the afflictions uh, uh, kind of grounded on that kind of misconception can be addressed. And through that, the sufferings resulting from that could be addressed. But here the debate is the objection that they present takes the form of saying, earlier you, you accepted that impermanence is a real teaching, that impermanence is a reality, except that it is not so in the, in the, uh, phase of ultimate, in the phase of ultimate, uh, analysis, but it is a reality, um, in that it has its relevance on a conventional level. 
But then the, but then when they heard the uh, response from the Prasanga Madhimika saying that in the ultimate sense, or in the eyes of an ultimate, in yeah, in the in the eyes of an ultimate analysis, nothing can withstand, and nothing uh, can exist, and it's equal to being not existent. And to that, they included momentariness or the impermanence. But on the other hand, they said momentariness or impermanence is existing uh, on a conventional level as an interpretive reality, but nonetheless understood, uh, meditated upon, understood, and thus serving as a viable object uh, to a corresponding consciousness. But then the, the realists bring up this topic of how some people can be mistaken, although they wouldn't say it is a mistaken thing, how some people could be mistaken in, in seeing things impermanent as permanent, or, or kind of uh, proposing that there must be a permanent self, a permanent thing that could then go from one life to another, etc. Or, or even without any kind of a philosophical standpoint, very often ordinary beings uh, see things in the light of they see things in the light of being permanent, saying the same thing existed the previous time, the same thing that we see today was there previously. So they are kind of collating uh, two times together, uh, two different times together, and that's equal to seeing it as permanent, unchanged. So they, they bring up such uh, instances of consciousnesses where uh, it sees things in the permanent uh, light, in the permanent uh, form. And they say that, and they think that that's equal to projecting, that is equal to uh, designating permanence on things, and that permanence at least is as viable and valid uh, in to the uh, to that consciousness, and that is enough. That is that is enough. That is enough to say that the permanence is at least takwa, renowned to that consciousness. And earlier you said that all things exist is by way of takwa, by way of being renowned, and we have this takwa. We have this permanent permanence being renowned by a consciousness. And that should be enough for it to exist, because that's the way things exist, as Prasangika Madhamika said that. So this is mistaking, mistaking this very fine line the, to the claim by the Prasangika Madhamika that everything exists by mere renown, by mere, by being mere seen or understood. To saying. Everything that is seen or understood or renowned must necessarily exist. So there's a fine line between the two. Everything that exists is merely designated, but it is not equal to saying anything that is designated must necessarily exist. And here, by drawing from the response earlier, by using the term takpa, renowned to a consciousness, where was it? Yeah. I think that was in, in relation to the form, form and the direct perception of seeing the form. Saying that 
in that case, it is not because form is the ultimate truth, right? The form is ultimate truth, and direct perception is seeing its ultimate truth. Rather, it's only seeing its conventional truth by way of the form being takpa, by way of form being renowned or uh, seen uh, by the uh, by the direct perception. So they are drawing from that response, saying, just as impermanence form can be renowned to a particular consciousness, likewise. Permanence is renowned to a particular consciousness, and that means that means impermanence should not exist because, with regard to a particular object, that same thing is seen as permanent uh, to a consciousness, and that should be equal. There should be enough for that permanence on that particular thing to exist to be valid, because it is. It is takpa, it is renowned by that consciousness. Suppose the object, and the response is, so the object is also, uh, the objection is also not explicitly mentioned there. Suppose the object, or maybe, but this is also contradictory on the, yeah, so then that's the objection. But that is also contradictory on the conventional level, because the same thing which is seen as impermanent at one time could be seen by somebody else as, in, as, as, as permanent. And how could both of them exist on the same thing, right? So that's contradictory on the conventional level. So that's the objection from the uh, realists. And from this point onward, from the last line, or rather is it yeah, from the last line for which your translation has two lines, suppose you object, but that is also contradictory on the conventional level. From this point on, uh, five, five contradictions are raised uh, to which Pasangik Madhimikas uh, uh, respond. The first one is that, uh, that impermanence uh, should not exist even on a conventional level. Why? Because permanence is what is renowned by certain consciousness, and that should validate the permanence being the right thing. Suppose you object, but that is also contradictory on the conventional level. Conventional level saying, even on, even conventionally, impermanence should not exist because its opposite permanence exists because it's what is renowned by a particular consciousness. And that should be enough as per your claim earlier that by mere renown is, is enough, uh, for things to be valid, like form is to a direct consciousness. Now, this brings, and the response is on the first, in the first line of stanza eight. The valid convention of yogis has no fault of contradiction. So, remember, uh, I think Tsongkhapa mentions this in Lamrim Chemo, where he lays out three criteria for things to be conventionally real. For them to be renowned by a conventional, renowned, for them to be renowned, I'm using the term renowned, but that may not make any sense. For it to be a, a sub-object in relation to a conventional consciousness, for it to be not contradictory 
to what not not for it to be not contradicted or um, yeah not contradicted by a valid conventional uh, cognition and for it to be not contradicted by an ultimate uh, wisdom so so here the so here the permanence being brought up it fulfills the first criteria for something to be existing validly all the three criteria criteria should be uh, fulfilled but this permanence part of uh, the objection is saying just taking single singling out a instance where someone mistakes something as permanence although he doesn't although the realists do not present it as mistaken they just present it as a case of someone registering permanence on something at least to that consciousness permanence is what is renowned to renowned by and and they thought that should be enough for anything to be uh, existing because they thought that line of uh, response using this renowned thing is enough for things to be existing. But that was only one criteria or condition for things to exist. It needs to be, it should be fulfilled, but that is not enough. Because just being renowned to a conventional mind or conventional consciousness, I'm not saying renowned to a conventional valid consciousness, but I'm just saying renowned to a conventional mind. It could be mistaken, unmistaken, whatever. That's the first criteria, right? Just by fulfilling that is not enough for things to fulfill all the rest of the criteria for existence. Or just, or another way of saying is, just by fulfilling the first criteria is not enough for things to be established or posited as existing validly. And and here the second criteria is saying the second criteria is not fulfilled. What you are saying, what you are presenting as existing in reality, that of a permanent, say, say somebody sees forms as permanent, somebody sees two forms as existing at the, one form existing in two times, right? Or the two times are collated together in seeing a particular thing as being existing that way. That is just a case of, as a, just this is just a case of something renowned to a consciousness, conventional consciousness, something that is registered by a conventional consciousness, but that fails in fulfilling the second criteria of being not to use the actual term of being not damaged by of being not contradicted by a conventional valid cognition. That's what is lacking in this case. So that's what is presented here in the first line of the eighth stanza. The valid convention of yogis has no fault of contradiction. That same thing which is seen as permanent by that consciousness that you are bringing up, that same consciousness is contradicted by a yogi's valid understanding of that same particular base as being impermanent. Because it is, it is contradicted by a Permanent, uh, contradicted by a valid conventional uh, cognition, uh, that 
because of that, uh, what you are, what you, what you are proposing cannot be accepted. Saying, say somebody sees form as permanent, and to that consciousness, form as permanent is what is renowned to, what is renowned, what is registered, but that doesn't make it viable, as valid, as existing the way it is seen by that consciousness, because this consciousness is proven as wrong by another valid consciousness. So damaged or contradicted is saying it is being proven as wrong. So things could be projected, but wrongly so. And that's not enough for them to be existing that way. Things could be designated, but correctly so. And correctly so, not because there's something correct, some element of correctness in and of themselves, but correctly so by by the fact that it is not contradicted either by another con con conventional valid con cognition or by any ultimate valid cognition. The valid cognition or convention of yogis has no fault of contradiction. I think this, the, the, the same debate earlier is also continued in the next three lines. Otherwise, their discernment of the uncleanliness of a woman's body, for instance, so they included, for instance, this is very essential here, because Shantideva brings up women's body uh, by mere, uh, a mere conven uh, convenience in that he was addressing uh, just exclusively a male audience. That's true. Uh, monks, and as monks, as practitioners, the main uh, thrust of our practice should be in uh, addressing and attacking the afflictions, among which attachment could be a very strong one. But very often, uh, it is towards the opposite gender. So if he were to be teaching a women congregation or a mixed congregation, he could be saying men's or men's or women's body, because the uncleanliness being referred to is the same as uh, same that is drawn from the sutra where we speak of uh, the 32 or 35, 36 false substances that make up our body to see uh, its uncleanliness to then generate a sense of uh, detachment in attacking attachment towards them. So that's uh, what is being alluded here. Very often, I mean, in 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 Shantideva's having compassion, compassion to everyone, and that to great compassion to the level of uh, kind of being uh, strongly uh, inspired to work for the well-being of all sentient beings. It's unquestionable. We could see that very clearly reflected, particularly in this eighth chapter, likewise. So it's important to see this within the context. Like, like usually I say, when we come across bodhisattva texts, the level of clamping down on self-centeredness is so huge, to the point that we might even think that self-centeredness must be a negative thing, non-virtuous thing. How come they come down this heavily? But that's not necessarily. They are fully aware that self-centeredness at its best can take the form of aspiring to achieve uh, liberation for one's own sake, which is a virtuous one, which is so marvelous, it could land the person 
to a state of liberation. They are climbing down with full awareness. That's what it, what it does. But for them, that is even a greater danger, greater risk, greater uh, disenchantment, greater reason of disenchantment with self-centeredness. Because when one is uh, placed in uh, what is usually called um, partial, partial liberation, uh, partial liberation, partial maybe because such a liberation is not complete, uh, that the obscuration of cognition is not uh, eliminated. And, but there is an additional reason to kind of call it that we're saying that's not just partial, but that is partial in kind of a really, uh, partial in really bestowing, uh, just very uh, compromised uh, level of peace. Uh, in the sense that such a peace could almost like seduce you to kind of stay with it. And that is uh, as dangerous and as uh, disgusting thing for the bodhisattvas. So like, so sometimes we can get that kind of a sense from, the, from reading the bodhisattvas uh, uh, discourses and scriptures, but that has to be understood in the context. Likewise, is the case here. So otherwise, their, their discernment of the uncleanliness of a woman's body, for instance, would be undermined by the common world, because the common world sees them as clean. And, and here, clean, this, the, 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 all the four distorted conceptions are kind uh, of eluded here. We can be wrong in seeing unclean as clean, as dissatisfactory, as satisfactory, as dukkha, as, uh, yeah, dukkha as, as pleasurable, as non-self, as self, etc. So merely pairing two consciousnesses with contradictory, uh, contradictory, uh, what do you call, objects, contradictory way of engaging with the consciousness is not to say that either both of them exist, both of them are valid, or not to say that they cancel each out and there's nothing existing. For the Prasangika Madhimikas, it is to then see, when you are faced with such an option, then you have to see if it is being contradicted by either another conventional valid cognition or an ultimate valid cognition. This then takes us to the second, second objection. To the, to the basic first, to the basic initial premise of the, or the position of the Prasangika Madhamikas that things exist but not truly. Whereas in the eyes of the, to the eyes of the realist, there's no distinction between two. They are one and the same thing. If things exist, they must exist truly. If things do not exist truly, they must not exist at all. So they struggle between the two. And then, uh, looking at the responses from the person in Matamika, they get even more, uh, even more confused. And thus collating, yeah, collating one claim to 
yet another assumption like that. And that, that's helpful in seeing for us to see the subtle nuances of this insight into ultimate reality. The second objection is that, that, that if things didn't exist, if things do not exist truly, if things do not exist truly, how come Buddha has so highly spoken of such practices as making offerings, engaging in generosity, engaging in all other practices of, of purification, all of those? If things do not exist truly, then the Buddha having taught such practices as making offerings as a source of accumulating merit seems to be contradictory because they, they should not be married if they are not truly existent. There should not be offerings, objects of offerings if they are not truly existing. If they are not existing at all, engaging in them could be cannot be seen as a source of merit. To this, the response is, from the illusion-like victorious, illusion-like victorious ones, positive forces arise, just as asserted by those who believe in truly existent things. In a way, this is in a kind of interface kind of a response from the Prasangi Matamika, saying, "Well, don't worry so much. You stick to your, you stick to your uh, adherence to true existence and engage in uh, offerings and other practices in a true existent way." And you will accumulate in your eyes. You will accumulate truly existing merits. But for us, uh, Prasangika Madhamikas, we are fine with illusion like a victorious one, having taught illusion like Dharma uh, to the point to the to the point of saying, uh, make offerings, make illusion like offerings, and from that you will attain illusion like uh, uh, merit, and those merits will be viable in leading you to a state of illusion-like enlightenment. Whereas to the, to the, to the, uh, to the ears of the uh, realists, it's like saying illusion-like Buddha, illusion-like merit, that's almost equal to saying, that's equal to saying they do not matter, they do not, they are just mere illusion and do not have any grounding in reality. So they have difficulty really grappling with it, but it's it's a way to kind of when you sh when you are shocked, then you begin to see, then you begin to question and begin to look at things more deeply, right? So it's one way of shocking them, but at the same time, it is perfectly in line with the the Prasangikamatamika's uh, position. Except here, illusion-like is not illusion-like that something appears but doesn't exist at all. But here the illusion like is something appears as truly existent, but they do not truly exist. They may exist, but not truly. They appear as truly existing, but not exist that way, but exist nonetheless. So illusion like this kind of analogy is quite mistaken, mis, mis, uh, mis, kind of mis, uh, deceiving and some misleading because it, it cannot be taken in just one light. It could be taken in so many different ranges of application. And here the application is illusion-like because there's a disparity between how things appear and how things exist. Not that things appear as existing and the things do not exist at all, but rather saying 
things exist, but not the way, but not truly existing, but not truly as it appears to be. But one is not ruling out the existence of the thing. So here, furthermore, from the illusion like victorious one, positive forces arise. So one could be saying, illusion like victorious one, the teaching was that illusion like illusion like forces can arise from having engaged in illusion like practices of making illusion like offerings. And we are fine with that, just as you, the realist, are fine with saying everything is truly existent, and the Buddha taught truly existing teachings to the effect that truly existing offerings should be made so that you could attain truly existing uh, merits and that can lead to truly existing uh, uh, attainments. <laughs> okay, so with that, we'll leave it here. <laughs> the next uh, uh, objection is interesting about birth about rebirth and like that. Okay. So we'll leave it here. <laughs>